This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Dr. Suhas Kashir-Sagar. Dr. Suhas, as he is called by clients and friends, is a classically trained Ayurvedic physician and a gold medalist from the prestigious Pune University, a Rig Vedic Brahmin by tradition, and an accomplished clinician by training, adds tremendous value to his clients and students alike. He currently leads an Ayurvedic clinic offering Panchakarma diet and lifestyle consultations, Vedic astrology, Vedic counseling, medical dietology, and herbal medicine. With Sounds True, Dr. Suhas has released two audio programs, Effortless Weight Loss, The Ayurvedic Way, and a six-session audio learning series called Ayurvedic Wellness, The Art and Science of Vibrant Health, where he offers practical instruction in cornerstone principles of Ayurveda, including diet, exercise, breathing, and meditation, to balance, heal, and transform your life. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Dr. Suhas and I spoke about Ayurvedic wisdom for long life, particularly in relationship to our diet and the benefits of eating less as we age. We also talked about fasting and recommendations from Ayurveda for a regular, healthy 24-hour fast. We also talked about philosophical insights from Ayurveda, that help promote resiliency and optimism. And finally, Dr. Suhas's vision for how Ayurveda can dramatically help us with our healthcare crisis in the West. Here's my conversation with Dr. Suhas. Dr. Suhas, I wanted to begin by asking you to comment on a comment that Deepak Chopra makes at the beginning of your new book, The Hot Belly Diet. And Deepak writes, the digestive tract is the most critical system in the body. In introducing the hot belly diet, these are Deepak Chopra's words. The digestive tract is the most critical system in the body. And I thought to myself, is that really true? What about the circulatory system, the respiratory system? Why the digestive tract? Well, I think he's he's right in saying that because uh, digestive system is responsible for everything that we metabolize and convert. And he is broadly referring to the term of how we ingest and metabolize not only food but every experience. And whether we like it or not, gut is or our digestive uh, system is the kind of the doorway for all the food to get in and convert itself into the nutrients what are required for the cells and tissues to stay alive so it does go through the digestive system in the ancient ayurvedic text it is often referred as a sacred fire which is burning in the middle of you and that sacred fire is a constant process of metabolic furnace that is keeping you warm and alive because the very first thing that happens once you are dead and gone is you are cold. And to maintain the body temperature to even that level where everything can be sustained is one of the main function of your digestive fire and digestive system. So uh, from an Ayurvedic point of view, we always uh, describe diet as if what you take in from any field of perception, from any mode of intellect. Uh, everything, what you touch, what you see, what you smell, what you hear, what you sense, and what you take in and how you metabolize that, that's what you create your body. So we are the metabolic end product of 
what we perceive and everything, how we perceive the world in and out through us. And so that's exactly what he was referring to. And even though this, uh, my new book, Hot Belly Diet, is, is about uh, rekindling your metabolic fire and digestive agni, as we call it, uh, it is also about rekindling your fire for uh, passion for life. And this is all about understanding that sense, that feeling light, feeling bright, feeling radiant, having that desire to make the right positive health choices should come from that degree of uh, quality of fire and the radiant light of knowledge, which will avoid the common mistakes that we make what we call in Ayurveda as pragyaprad or mistakes of intellect. So in a broader spectrum, he's, he's very much right in describing that. Now let's talk a little bit about the ways that we take things in that need to be digested that aren't specifically related to what we eat. Because in this conversation, Dr. Suhas, we're going to talk a lot about the hot belly diet and what to eat and what not to eat and when to eat, et cetera, et cetera. But tell me about all the other ways that we're have the potential to take in healthy nutrients or not? Well, I think um, to break it down very simply, there are only three things that we require to stay alive. Number one is air. Without that, you cannot really go very far. Number two is water that you can pull without it for a few days, I would say. And uh, food, which is the least uh, important on the list which you can stay alive for about a month or so without the food. And if you really pay attention to eating very small in the right proportion of the food, you can live healthier, happier, and a longer life. So in all the spiritual tradition, uh, paying attention to eating smaller portions of the food and eating the right kind of food has always been an important thing. They, they paid more attention to how you are looking at everything else, how you stay positive, how you uh, become a little bit more optimistic in how you are ingesting the experience, uh, what is your makeup is in how you lead your life and how you assimilate information, your upbringing, how you were raised, how you look at a given situation and create uh, a metabolic response into your body. Because at the end of the day, even in medicine nowadays, we are realizing it that the body's internal state can constantly get altered by everything what you see through the gateways of perceptions, which is your senses. And I think this is relating to this age-old Vedic wisdom that they have always understood that the way you perceive your world, you become. And whether you talk about cortisol, whether you talk about endocrine system, whether you talk about all the different molecules of emotions that are affecting your system, it is, it is always uh, dependent upon your ability to the way you look at things, the way you perceive things, the way you manage your stresses, the way you, your outlook has become. And as, as the constant pursuit of enlightenment is constantly reshaping your thoughts, ideas, polishing your attitude a little bit and trying to become a better human being. Uh, and that is, that is one of the most important goals, uh, even from an Ayurvedic medicine, because uh, health is a byproduct of enlightenment. And once you're constantly on the track of trying to become a better human being, you're more likely to stay healthy that way. Okay, now I have a question about that, because that's a very strong comment. Health is a byproduct of enlightenment. And so I'm imagining, I mean, when you said it, I imagined someone like Ramana Maharshi. I know you're familiar, Dr. Suhas, with this great saint from India who died of cancer. And people, I mean, he's the first example that came to mind of supposedly a great enlightened person who didn't seem very healthy. How do you make sense of that? Well, as, as we say, and it's, it's funny that you ask this question, because I'm also a medical astrologer. And we all are going through different ages and different lifetimes of bringing our karma with us, whether we are doing the right things or the wrong things. So we always have to burn some of our karmic journeys in order to move toward the next phase of life. And 
uh, in a broader sense, enlightenment is almost liberation from the need to take rebirth and go through this cycle of life and birth over and over again. So uh, many enlightened sages have to go through the suffering that their body has to go through uh, within the same lifetime while they stay enlightened, and body as a carpet goes through the the changes and the suffering that it inflicts upon uh, in terms of your diseases. And uh, we have seen many enlightened saints, uh, I'm not talking about some of them who were apparently making mistakes, who were, which was contributing to their diseases, but in spite of that, they were always going through some of these shifts and transformations which their uh, karmic journey has brought together to certain things. But one differentiating point is, even when these people go through some of these physical challenges, I would say, I've seen a very, very different spark of life and uh, spiritual wisdom in in their living and in their outlook. Even when they are dying and slowly going through the degenerative process of the bodily decay as it is going through. And we have witnessed many masters who have gone through those things. The body is the first thing which which is important and um, it is very interesting for me to for you to ask this question because the motto of Ayurveda, um, and it's a Sanskrit motto which says Ayurvedo Amritanam. The motto of Ayurveda is Ayurveda for immortality. And why would someone create a medical science which would actually talk about immortality? And so it is it is a science which always tells that you have to do what you have to do for your body. But the pursuit should always be in an enlightened manner so that you can be connecting yourself with your immortal self where you are never born and you are never gone. And once you are there, then whatever happens through the body, you can simply witness as it is going on as if you are watching a procession or something like that. So many of these enlightened masters, I won't say have disconnected themselves, but have reached to a level where they are in their enlightened pursuit and they are looking at their body as as a mere procession which is going through the chores of pain and suffering and diseases and sickness because even aging is is a disease described in Ayurveda and 100% mortality rate that we have. But it's how much evolved we are, how easily we are on the evolutionary track, and how minimal uh, suffering that we let it affect us, I think that's one of the few signs that we always need to tap into. Now, when you say aging is considered a disease, are you saying that the aging process is not a requirement of human life for all of us? Well, as I said, that it can it can be slowed down, but as I said, that the first breath that you take takes you to the last breath eventually at some point. Your full-time job is to improve the quality and the quantity in between the two breaths. And all the age-old techniques, whether you talk about meditation, whether you talk about pranayama, whether you talk about uh, increasing the gap in between the two breaths, it's almost like as if you're born with specific number of breaths and as if you can increase the gap in between them, if you can slow down your heart rate, pulse rate, respiratory rate, even the metabolic rate, you're going to live longer and healthier and happier. So uh, a relaxation response to everything can cultivate that. And this has been proven uh, by modern medicine over and over again. And when, when you're under stress, this whole flight or fight response that you get into, um, all the hormonal dysregulation that you get into, your heart beats like a flutter, uh, the brain gets starts aging, the heart starts getting affected. All of these things are the signs of premature aging. And if you want to really reverse, and I'm not saying we are going to retard the aging process, uh, it is biologically impossible to completely stop and retard the aging process, but you can slow down the aging process, and that's the whole purpose of the whole Ayurvedic uh, concept of Rasayana and rejuvenation, where you want to keep the cells and tissues healthier, whether you want to maintain the clarity of your senses as long as you can, because it doesn't matter how many wrinkles you have on your skin. What matters the most is whether your senses tend to be very clear even when you're 70s, 80s, and 90s. 
And if you see those people who are in their 90s and who can carry out a perfect conversation, give a nice long talk about a given topic in a very interesting, engaging way, and can remember, retain, recall any information what happened 40, 50, 60 years ago, that is reversal of aging. Now, you said something interesting that eating less, basically, eating these small portions would help us if we're interested in a, a long, healthy life. It, it seems like that's now pretty clearly proven. Is that true? That is absolutely true because uh, I think we we created a whole science based upon nutrition where it was almost coming from a scarcity mentality that you need to have this, you need to have that, you need to eat this much of this, that much of that. But we are realizing it painfully enough that uh, people are dying due to overnutrition and um, our country and uh, we are having a situation where most of the people are overfed and undernourished. And when we start eating less, the channels are open, you feel lightness, you feel clarity. Uh, those people who live close to 100 years, one of the common denominator of their secret of living longer is that they're eating less. And most of the calories that they're eating is well before 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of science and research which is done. It's not only important what you eat, but when, where, how, and why you eat is also very important. So you are absolutely right. Actually, eating less is more healthier than eating too much. And uh, it's an interesting paradox where half of the world is dying because of undernourishment and the rest of the half of the world is dying due to overnourishment. So we we need to really draw a line where we have to select some really healthy, natural, vibrant, small portions of food and eat those. And one of the premise of the hot belly diet is is follow the routines of the nature. If you are living in accordance with the laws of nature, you are perfectly safe and healthy. So instead of really uh, looking at a man-made science, pay attention to the God-made nature outside. When the sun is waking up in the morning, your digestive fire is barely waking up at that time. So you don't want to have a huge heavy breakfast that time. You're just waking up after seven, eight hours of sleep. So the sunlight is tender outside. So you want to eat something light and warm and easily digestible breakfast, like maybe a small bowl of steel-cut oatmeal with some uh, nuts and ghee and some berries and things like that. And then when the sun is prominent in the middle of the day, that's when you want to have your main lunch, uh, when your digestive fire is really awake. And that's the major portion of the calories that you will take for that day. And in the evening, when the sunlight is fading, uh, you should be having a lighter dinner. And that should be at least three to four hours before you sleep in the evening so that you digest that food really well before you sleep. And it's as simple as that. If you follow this, then it becomes rather easy. So eating less, eating light, and eating right is a simple Ayurvedic principle which will probably improve and increase your longevity. So there's some connection between the sun, the light of the sun, and my digestive fire? That's correct. Because that is a representation of liver and your digestive fire, which is correlate to the sunlight. Sun is the giver of life. And our metabolic fire or agni or digestive fire is all correlated with, with the thing with related with sunlight. Now, what about people who say, you know, you're supposed to have a really big breakfast, start the day off right by having this, you know, breakfast like a king, that kind of idea? Well, again, that's that's something where we always want to make sure that you are you are not really taxing yourself eating too much of food. And those are the people when they probably eat a huge breakfast and they're not that hungry for lunch and they are often skipping their lunch or eating something super light for lunch and then they are ravenously hungry for later in the evening. And I think that's a common mistake and it's a common uh, advice which is given to people. And that is something which I see in my practice uh, doesn't work because people come back home and eat that huge big meal in the night and um, they are they are uh, sleeping with that big meal in their belly 
and uh, when they are having that food in their belly their heart rate their pulse rate their respiratory rate everything slows down because they are sleeping for 7 8 9 hours and that food remains in their system not being digested and they wake up feeling dull heavy and groggy and you try to put another big meal on top of that so you are actually mixing undigested food with the fresh new food uh, because someone told tells you that you have to eat a big breakfast at that time your body is not ready to digest that food at that time so i think it's it's one of the things which i do with my clients and many of them uh, who have the success stories of uh, awakening their digestive fire have have seen a huge benefit of having a lighter breakfast than having a huge big breakfast in the morning Okay, so to go a little further into this question of when I should be eating because I'm quite curious about this. One of the things that you emphasize in your work is that it's better to let yourself get hungry between meals than to eat like six small meals during the course of the day, which I've heard other nutrition experts recommend. Never let yourself get too hungry because then you'll eat the wrong thing. That kind of thing. But you're suggesting something different, which is there's value in letting the digestive fire heat up. So can you help me understand that? Yeah, and hunger is is an interesting word. And having a sense of good hunger is considered to be a sign of good health. and from all ayurvedic point of view in all the wisdom tradition they actually talk a lot about about that need of the body to feel that hungry and i'm not talking about any false hunger or blood sugar fluctuation i'm talking about genuinely feeling the need to receive the food and when you feel that that's almost a sign or a signal that the body is trying to send you that i'm ready to receive some food and if you give me the right kind of food at this time i should be able to metabolize and convert into the proper nutrients and the cells and tissues you want but when you don't give the body the fuel at that time and you don't really allow the body to get hungry enough that's when it's very very diluted amount and you're constantly supplying it's almost like fueling your car every 2 hours when you don't need it and then those excess calories are going to get packed into somewhere because the body is never going to register that this is the food that i need to digest and burn but this is what i'm receiving when i'm not needing it so i'm going to stack it somewhere and that's the problem and that's the reason why people actually train themselves afterwards to get hungry every 2 hours because of that cycle so one of the premise of hot belly diet is to avoid any snacking in between the meals so when you have your breakfast just don't eat anything till you are ready for lunch and from lunch to dinner don't eat anything avoid any snacking and you do it for maybe 30 days you will reset your metabolic fire where you are getting hungry at the right times and the in between cravings that you used to get will be minimized you will have much more stable blood sugar levels and you will not get hungry is the way we train our body and we are not trained means even everybody talks about paleo diet and everybody talks about uh, the human evolution and uh, we were not eating six times a day 100 years ago nobody ate six times a day 100 years ago everybody used to uh, eat a meal and then wait until they can get to the next meal or something like that so i think even the days of hunter gatherers uh, having a degree of ketosis having a degree of hunger was good enough to start burning the unwanted fat in their body and it's an interesting um, concept and you would appreciate this because uh, especially in this country we, we do not have a culture or a tradition where we use fasting as a spiritual process of clearing our thoughts and ideas and notions so when you fast there is a sanskrit term uh, for fasting called as upavasa upavasa means staying close to yourself or your godly self or your divine self so there is a very interesting spiritual awakening that happens and in all whether it's jewish tradition whether you look at the muslim tradition whether you look at even the catholic uh, lens or the 40 day fasting that you talk about ancient cultures used to have that concept in india it's 
it's going overboard nowadays with with uh, fasting days for hanumana for shiva for ganesha almost 7 days a week people are fasting in some ways but i think it's a it's an interesting concept if you if you learn to enjoy your hunger is a sign of good health and slowly you are training and taming that thing so whether hunger uh and having that desire to eat the food whether you're feeling light where your tongue is light and clear you're having that energy to function throughout the day and there are many signs that we talk about in medicine uh that that actually makes a lot of sense that to enjoy a sense of hunger and giving the meal at that time when you're hungry and uh the simple analogy that i use with my patients is like hunger is more like when you look at the fuel gauge gauge in your car so when it goes to the emergency level that's when you feel suddenly into a panic mode so we don't want it to go all the way to the emergency level when it comes to maybe one or two that's when you should start eating the food and when you are about maybe 6 or 7 that's when you should stop you should not really eat all the way till you are stuffed so you should not go all the way down where you are feeling lightheaded and dizzy and weak and you should not be stuffing yourselves too much and if you start eating the right foods in the right amount between breakfast lunch and dinner i think there will be less and less fluctuations there was an interesting research not long ago came out where most of the americans reached for a snack when they were actually thirsty so we have become so dumb and disconnected that we can't even differentiate between thirst and hunger so if at the same time when people feel the desire to have snack if they drink a cup of warm water or uh, water at room temperature it will take away that craving it will take away that craving it will stabilize your blood sugar level it will hydrate that and actually this is an excellent way for you to actually increase the gap between the need to eat a lot of food and i think i think slowly um, it is it is coming to more and more understanding that eating less and eating right and at the right time is one of the most important solution for not only losing weight but keeping it that way and why are you recommending warm water or room temperature water not cold water i call that as uh, <laughs> a comparison between holy waters and unholy waters we are surrounded with lot of unholy waters where caffeinated beverages sugary sodas fruit juices energy drinks these are all unholy waters and from my point of view a neutral ph plain water is is one of the most holy water that you can drink so it's plain water again if that is ice cold that is not good because it it weakens and reduces your digestive temperature and dilutes the digestive juices and probably it makes it difficult for you to digest if it is warmer it's hot water then it actually rekindles your digestive fire it improves circulation it improves your diuresis it eliminates all the impurities much more easily and if you are drinking even spice infused herbal waters like a cumin coriander fennel ginger tea or something like that or plain slices of ginger in hot water with lemon then it it kindles your digestive fire it resets your metabolic temperature and probably improves the functioning of the liver and the kidneys and the blood circulation altogether and hot water has has cleansing action uh many of the patients or the clients i see on a everyday basis uh, when they are overweight their guts are very sludgy they are they are uh, having this tissue sludge what we call it as ama and this ama is residual impurities which are stuck into their system because they are not digesting their food they are feeling bloated they are heavy they are dull and they feel uh, gassy and sometimes retained impurities so when they start drinking hot water it starts cleansing things more easily when you have a greasy pan and you want to clean a greasy pan you try to pour some ice cold water on it it won't go away but if you take that greasy pan and hold it under hot water for few minutes the grease will come out that's exactly what it does to your system so it has a age old medical concept of vasodilation 
when you're drinking hot water, it improves the circulation. It dilates the vessel. It improves the urinary output. It cleanses uh, your, uh, your digestive system. It actually rekindles your metabolic fires and everything, especially the cellular fires. And that's the reason why I, I advise, especially on a hot belly diet program, to drink hot water uh, or the herbally infused uh, spice water, as I call it. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, you mentioned fasting and the benefits of fasting, and I'd be curious to know what an Ayurvedic recommended approach to fasting would be. How many days? What do I do? Do I still come to work? Do I not go to work? Well, I mean, I think think the interesting thing is um, when people fast for 24 hours or something, that is very weakening kind of a feeling. They have never done that, and suddenly they do that. Uh, You can't really do it for very long. You have to slowly train yourself. So the way I start with number one is the best way to fast would be to say no to snacking in between your breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I think everybody can do that. That's not difficult. If at all you cannot do that, at least select the least amount of the right kind of snacks, which is only fruits in between the meals. So it's a gentle fasting. The second step, if at all you are you have graduated from this level of having no snack between breakfast, lunch, and dinner, the second step is try to take uh, an early evening dinner. So you are done eating by 7 o'clock in the evening on an everyday basis. And you don't take breakfast till 7 o'clock in the morning. So you have almost a 12-hour fasting on an everyday basis, which is very good. So if you're able to fast for 12 hours every day, that's a huge benefit medically for for your system. The third thing is many times which I advise people that uh, if you want to select maybe one day a week, what you do is you have your normal breakfast on a given day. Then you have a little bit of a late lunch, maybe 1 o'clock or 1.30 you have your lunch. And then you skip your dinner. You skip your dinner that day. And then next morning, you skip your breakfast and have an early lunch around 12 noon. So from today's lunch till next day lunch, you're having almost a 24-hour fasting, and you won't even realize that you are doing any fasting. So intermittent fasting this way, done maybe once or twice a week, will help you really maintain your weight very, very easily and effectively. So intermittent fasting, there's a lot of research done on this. You can also do something what we call it as light juice kind of a fast where you create a blended juice version of fruits and vegetables and you drink that a uh, couple of drinks every morning and evening. You can have a soupy khichdi diet where you are making a very light soupy meal once or twice a day and drink hot water throughout the day. But Whatever you do is something which you have to learn to do on a regular basis. So it's not that you do it in a jerky manner where you suddenly fast for three days or seven days and then you start eating whatever you want afterwards. So you have to start training yourself with the mindset that you are enjoying the fast and you are feeling good without having any crash in your energy during those days when you're fasting. Does it make sense, or am I making it too complicated? No, I think you're inspiring me. Is your recommendation, though, that this 24-hour period is the right amount of time to be fasting on a weekly basis yeah, or whatever? Even yeah. though it feels 24 hours, if I tell you from today 7 o'clock till tomorrow 7 o'clock, don't eat anything, that is too much. But if you're having two meals and you're still making 24 hours, half of which you're sleeping in the night, it, it's not that taxing. It's not that taxing. 
But you're not recommending, though, like, you know, the 10-day fast and the spiritual no, visions not. that you'll see as part of it, et cetera, et cetera. No, no, no. We're talking about common people, Tammy, here. We're talking about everyone who is who's going out, work, and make a living, and they have, have enough energy to do that. And uh, anything, uh, as I said, too much to an extreme would work for a short time, but it's not going to sustain. And I think one of the biggest challenges, especially with people who struggle with weight, is the yo-yoing, the roller coaster, where yeah. it goes up and down constantly. So once they create a mindset, once they start eating mindfully, once they start fasting mindfully, uh, once they start drinking mindfully, all of those things are going to become a part of their thinking. I use these two interesting terms in my book, which said Shreyas and Preyas. Shreyas is something which is actually good for your body, but you may not like it. And prayers is something which you really like, but which may not be good for you. So you may love the taste of melting ice cream on your tongue, and you love ice cream, but it may not be good for you. I'm just giving an example. I'm not saying ice cream is totally bad for everyone. But I think it's just an example that you may crave for something at a sensorial level, but it may not be the right thing for you. And the other thing is it may not be liked by your senses, but it's ultimately good for you. So how can you start making those changes which initially feel that you don't like, but slowly you start liking those things which you didn't like in the first place? Mark Twain said something very interesting one time. He said that I figured out a very simple way to be healthy. I should be eating what I don't want to eat. I should be doing what I would rather not do. I would be healthy automatically. And to a certain extent, this is true, because every time you exercise, every time you fast, every time you take castor oil, every time you go to any strenuous situation beyond your comfort level, uh, you may not like it, but you start feeling fabulous. And how can you start adopting those things where you start feeling, oh, I miss my kale, I miss my hot water, or I miss my yoga class. And those things which were initially difficult for you, but now you start liking it so much that it effortlessly becomes a part of the way you live your life. You start missing your meditation. You start missing your yoga class. You start missing your, your community events that you do and things like that. So start liking things which are really good for you. And it's a, it's a cellular memory that you need to reprogram yourself with. So all of these things, you have to uh, hold their hands, take them around the block one time, two time, three time, until it gets really ingrained in them. And that, that information which gets stored at a cellular level, which should guide them from inside out. And if it, that doesn't, then nobody can help them. Will I have a, a changed relationship to cravings? Will those cravings not occur? Or do you have some recommendation on what I do, for example, when I crave ice cream and hot fudge, but it's pretty clear it's not good for me? As a, as a, as a simple rule, it is that you are, you are craving for a specific food or a specific taste. And there are certain things that we always talk about. And uh, uh, Deepak recently published a book called as What Are You Hungry For? And there's always an emotional component, what, why you crave for something sweet or something salty. So it's actually sitting and letting yourself distill by, by looking at that thing that you really love and crave. And can you be satisfied with just a bite? Can you be satisfied with, with just looking at something or smelling certain foods that you really enjoy or having a very small bite of something? Or really ask yourself that, do I really want that? Or uh, what is the right uh, amount for me to have that at a given time? And what is going on in my mind at this moment? Why it's making me crave for something like this at, at 10 o'clock in the night? Whether it's lack of love in my life, whether it's, it's some stressful reaction to certain things. And it's quite common that you would be able to decode that. And once you do that, it might make it very easy. And even if you end up in grabbing uh, a bite of your favorite ice cream or something, I think you should be able to do that without any fear or guilt or prejudice and, and enjoy that moment and enjoy that food with, with a little bit of blessing so that it doesn't really create um, an unhealthy feeling uh, in your body as such. Now, Dr. Suhas, we've been talking a lot about how to eat the right foods, when to eat the right foods. 
And when we were talking about the science of Ayurveda previously, you mentioned this word immortality. And I want to circle back to that because I'd like to understand in Ayurveda what the connection is between caring so much about our physical body and our physical health and this idea of the possibility of some type of quote-unquote immortality. You must be talking about spiritual immortality of some kind. Help me understand this. It seems paradoxical to me. Well, I think I think means um, you know it very well, but... Uh... Uh, it is it is the field of consciousness it is the it is the ocean of consciousness from where everything comes in and everything gets merged into and uh, we talk a lot about this into quantum physics and quantum biology and quantum mechanics where when you look at any cells or tissues in your body uh, when you dissect it far deep enough uh, whether you look at your beautiful nose it's a cluster of tissues coming together those cluster of tissues are certain cells coming together. Those cells are nothing but certain atoms and subatomic particles which are moving at an electrifying speed. So what you call it as a frozen sculpture of your body at a quantum mechanical level is certain particles which are moving at an electrifying speed. So the understanding of your body as something frozen with 150 pounds in a given scheme of things with clear edges and boundaries is exactly not the Vedic paradigm how it looks at the body. So it is it is important for us to actually look at what what are the most important things and what are the ways that we look at immortality. So once you connect yourself with something which is never born and something which is never gone, which is your deeper self, Ayurveda is is not only a mind-body medicine, but it's a mind-body and spirit medicine. So all the techniques and everything is to tap into within your astral or causal body from where everything originated and the field of intelligence from where everything else is originating. Everything that functions in our body is is infinite field of intelligence that is pervading through in and out of us. We are constantly in communication and in exchange with the universe, with the nature. We are exchanging gases. We are ingesting every little experience, food, air, water. And that is keeping us survive and thrive very well as we are, uh, it's, the, it's the exchange that is going on constantly. So once we realize that, that we are, we are a miniature universe within us, then this fear of death simply goes away. Because then we don't identify ourselves as this lifetime with this survival instinct that you have, but you were there before you were gone and you will still be interacting and you will merge with the elements of nature long after you're gone. Whether you are cremated and uh, burned to ashes or you are buried deep down in the ground, it's the recycling plant. In Vedic terms, we call it as, as the field of this trinity where something new is created, it's stays alive for some time, it perishes, and from that destruction, the reconstruction begins. And they have used these different terms, um, and I don't want to bother you with so many Sanskrit terms, but they call it as utpatti, sthiti, and laya. Utpatti means something new is created, sthiti means it stays alive or it maintains itself, and laya means it perishes. And they have used these terms in the context of so many things, that is one into three and three into one, you can call it as Brahma, Vishnu, and Mahesh. You can call them as Lakshmi, Durga, Saraswati. You can call them Vata, Pitta, Kapha. You can call them as solid, liquid, and gases. You can call them as past, present, and future. You can call them as uh, the Christian Holy Trinity of Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You can call them as Sattva, Rajas, Tamas. So it's the same recycling of these three things, which is matter, energy, and consciousness recycling itself. And that connection of the universe that we identify in our body is the ultimate goal of realization. And once you realize that you are a part of this universe, then the fear goes away and then you start living in accordance with the laws of nature very easily. And that's the very premise of Ayurvedic medicine. Ayurveda is a consciousness-based approach to health and well-being. Now, you mentioned in passing, Dr. Suhas, as we were talking previously about this idea of immortality, that you're a medical astrologer. 
And I thought that was really interesting. What's a medical astrologer? Well, medical astrologer simply means that uh, uh, you can you can be an astrologer and you can find out someone's date of birth, place of birth, and time of birth. And uh, you can enter that information and cast a horoscope where the planets were in the sky. And uh, there's an Ayurveda uh, Vedic science, it's called as Jyotish, Jyoti uh, Isha, which means divine light. And it's a science of casting a horoscope. And once you place the planets, and these planets are uh, certain qualias, a certain qualitative aspect, like we talk about the five basic elements have certain qualities to them. You talk about certain doshas have certain qualities to them. Now you talk about certain planets and the stars and the constellations, which also have certain qualities to them. So there are different ways of looking at the qualities and helping the person to go beyond the qualities. So from saguna, try to transcend them towards nirguna. So as a medical astrologer, when I look at my patients, I look at their body type, I look at their medical history, I look at their signs and symptoms, what is what is affecting them. But when I look at their horoscope, it gives me a bigger, bigger spectrum of how their life has been how they started their journey, where they were born and raised up, and how it has structured their life, where their parents were together at that time, how was their childhood, how was their education, what are the vices, good and bad things they did in the earlier part of life, what was their education, how was life, uh, how their mindset got created, where they are in the grand scheme of things. So it really helps me understand that person really well and apply that to how am I able to help them better with my understanding. They might have a fiery nature because of Mars. They might have a solar predominance, which makes them a leader and and inclined to spiritual qualities. They might have a stronger Jupiter. So again, understanding the qualities, understanding the strength in their horoscope, and blending that with my medical understanding of their disease and their condition gives me a lot of different tools to help them better. Does it make sense? It does. And, and as you're speaking, what I'm feeling is how, because you were born and raised in India, you just have such a different worldview, I think, than certainly the Western doctors, most of them that I've come into contact with, it seems. And I'm curious to know from your perspective, what from your upbringing in India do you think has informed you differently than, let's say, a Western doctor who looks at issues of nutrition and diet? Well, number one is I was, I was born and raised in a, in a Vedic family of priests or Brahmins, they call it. And I was initiated very early in my life uh, to follow some of the simple Vedic principles. And we did go to schools and medical colleges and did everything like a normal child does. But there was all these rituals and different uh, uh, festivals and observances that we always went through uh, as a way of living. And even at that time, it really didn't make any specific scientific correlations that why they're important and why different festivals and different rituals fall into different times of the year and why do we do that. Um, until until I started learning about human body and and nutrition and the Western diagnostics and the tools and everything, um, I did my MD in Ayurvedic internal medicine from a very prestigious university in India, uh, and uh, I did my PhD in Ayurvedic medicine. And many of these things, when we started learning. Uh, what you were born and raised with and what you are learning creates a kind of uh, synthesis. And that synthesis actually helped me clarify a lot of things that I was unknowingly doing, and now I started making a lot of sense. And the most important shift happened that the founder of uh, the Transcendental Meditation Group, His Holiness Maharshi Mahesh Yogi, invited me and my wife, Dr. Manisha, to join his worldwide TM movement. Um, And so we went uh, and started working with him uh, and for him in Holland. And he made us travel all around the globe to about 39 different countries where we interacted with numerous physicians and healthcare settings, 
setting up Ayurvedic clinics, talking about meditation, talking about yoga, talking about Ayurvedic and the Vedic way of living, the quality of sound, mantra, all the different things that that were a very part of uh, Ayurvedic culture. And then we started comparing them and probing them with the Western style of living, the Western mindset of thinking, the objective way of looking at things with the subjective understanding what I had from my own faith and religious background and everything. And together that created that perfect blend of East and West, which I was able to go around and talk about it more confidently. And I think that's what I I would say was a blessing in my life. And do you have a vision, Dr. Suhas, for Ayurveda in the West? What would be your kind of dream unfolding of Ayurvedic medicine in the Western world? I I, I think that slowly where the healthcare system is going, <clears throat> uh, we are having a healthcare reform and there is the overhaul which is going on, it's not truly related with what is going on. The discussion is not about health yet. It's mostly about insurance and the reforms, who is going to get money from where. But I think slowly it's going to boil down to the core crux of the issue, which is about health, and how are we going to educate our own people to be healthy. And I think that's when Ayurveda can become a true template where it's it's very simple. It doesn't really belong to any country as such because it's it was there for thousands of years. So I think I think simple ways of abiding laws of nature, eating well, uh, living close with in the harmony of the elements of nature, finding some right blend of emotions and understanding and human relationships. And I think slowly everything that we are seeing is very Ayurvedic in nature to me, whether we talk about green living, um, interacting with the elements of nature, sustainable living, uh, organic uh, culture that is that is developing, people going off the grid. That is all very, very Ayurvedic in nature. So my vision is that once we really start having a discussion about health, we will need... <clears throat> so many people to go out and and start teaching and training and talking about people about what Ayurveda is and how can it be embraced to be a template for your own individualized well-being. It's not about someone telling you from a billboard, take vitamin C or do anything, but be mindful of you are a pitta type of a person, you are a vata type of a person, what you should be doing. If you are a kapha type of a person, what are the foods that you should stay away from? What are the three most important things that you should be doing, whether it's uh, yoga teachers blended together with Ayurvedic practitioners. And these are barefoot doctors who are going to go out. And these things can be taught and should be taught uh, maybe in the elementary schools, maybe in the middle schools, because uh, to be healthy, how to be healthy, how to be happy is something that we all need to learn. And that has to be the core basis of our uh, educational curriculum anywhere we go means sometimes when I see our students learning some of the things in the schools which they will never use in their lifetime, whether it's some aspects of advanced mathematics or U.S. history or things like that. I'm not saying that this is not important, but something what you will need 24/7 you never learn. And I think we hope that our parents are able to do that, our teachers are able to do that. So Ayurveda and yoga together can be a manual for a vibrant, healthy human life. And the more and more people are embracing this idea of meditation, yoga, mindful living, practicing Ayurvedic way of living, it is, it is, there's a reason why it is called a science of life. It is something that you really need to know how you should lead your life. It's a manual about how to live your life and how to be resilient in the good and bad things because it's absolutely uh, perfect to have some good and bad times in anybody's life. And how do you deal with that? And who teaches us how to be resilient, how to be positive, how to be optimistic, how to be happy, no reason what happens to you? Or how to be a little bit more careful in eating the right foods which are actually good for you or making the right choices which are going to make you a healthy, happy person. So I think 
my vision for yoga and ayurveda is more and more people learning this more and more people embracing this more and more people uh, trying to be healthy and get into their own preventive mindset because we want um, these mega infrastructures of healthcares to go out of business because if people simply start making the spontaneous health choices there is no real need the whole healthcare system is simply crumbling under the pressure of sick population who simply doesn't know what to do and when they are way 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 further down the road that's when we are teaching them and telling them oh make this change make that change but i feel that's a bit too late it should start right when the child is born is the responsibility of the parents to live this way so that the child can actually watch and learn how life is to be led Now, Dr. Suhas, you briefly referred to vata, pitta, kapha, these different constitutional types. And in my experience, one of the stumbling blocks that it seems people have in becoming familiar with Ayurveda and really applying it to their life is a difficulty in being able to identify which constitutional type they are with clarity and assurance. And so it's like, oh, this whole thing's too hard. You know, it's a science. I wasn't that good at science in school either. Now I don't know which type I am. I can't really, I don't know how to make sense of this. Well, I tell to many of my students, number one, you are a human being. You are a human being and just just try to understand that, that you are interacting with everything around you very clearly and positively. The second phase is to start paying vague attention to your bodily features. it doesn't have to be absolutely perfect because there are lots of genetics in them and you need a little bit of a trained eye to decode that because you might have and especially in this country we we have a gene pool which is coming from european chinese and so many different population mix and match together and so i think uh, sometimes you have a different type of hair different kind of eyes different kind of skin set so there is some genetic things that sometimes confuse you and sometimes is the imbalance that has that has made your hair a little bit dry the skin a bit more dry and you might be looking at the imbalance sometime and trying to understand oh is this my body type or something so some of the quizzes and the question is may not exactly tell you the story so in a broader term you have to probably simplify it and get a broader sense of understanding that you might have all the three doshas everybody has all the three doshas and uh, sometimes the way your mind works you need to pay attention to whether it it has a vata like behavior whether it is a pitta like behavior or kapha like behavior and once you start following and start paying attention to some of those things slowly you will start distilling these doshas much more easily so it's not that immediately after looking at a quiz in 10 minutes you would be able to figure this out that's the starting point but even if you understand that i have a vata predominance or i have a pitta predominance that's a good enough way to get started with so my advice to many of these people who go to these quizzes uh is is to get a broader sense and then start refining it yourself by paying attention and being mindful that how does your mind reacts in a given situation how does your body reacts how do you respond to certain foods and what does it tell you whether the food was dry whether the weather was dry whether it was a hot climate or a hot uh, food that you were eating and how did your body respond to that and that will start telling you or teaching you more about yourself Okay, I just have two final questions for you, Dr. Suhas. Here's the first one. You mentioned that the science of Ayurveda can help me become more resilient and optimistic about life. How can it help me with that? Well, I think uh the most important thing uh is that at the end of the day, you need to ask yourself a question that why are you here for? And what are you supposed to do? and that's the very basis of even ayurvedic medicine there's a wonderful quotation that we say that dharmartha kama mokshanam arogyam moolam uttamam so whatever you want to attain in life uh, whether you want to do your rightful duty or conduct called dharma whether you want to attain some wealth and money artha whether you want to enjoy your senses to the fullest which is kama or whether you want to pursue enlightenment health is to uh, is the basis of everything 
So asking a question that what is your dharma, what is your purpose in life? If the purpose in life is to do something good, to make difference uh, in someone else's life, and it's not about writing charity checks, it's about making sure that every interaction that you have with every human being is a little bit more kind, a little bit more compassionate, a little bit more <clears throat> positive so that you feel good about yourself. And once you start creating that, you create almost a, a chain reaction of bringing back abundance in your life because you are sharing that, you are creating that, you are feeling this, and it starts following the energetic shift and change in everything that you attract. The second most important concept of Ayurveda in, in, terms, of, in terms of finding true meaning for yourself is when you're closing your eyes few minutes every day, you're able to separate yourself and detach yourself from the entanglement of what life is, is doing to you. So if you're able to step back and look yourself out of the frame, that gives you a different perspective, that gives you that degree of just a little separation and detachment, which allows you to maintain your inner equilibrium much more easily. We call it as equanimity. So these are some very, very simple Ayurvedic techniques that if you start practicing, you will, you will go through a given situation, whether it's a traffic jam or a tragic loss of a friend or something like that. You will be able to look at it. You will be able to transcend that easily. It's human to feel good or bad, but you cannot stay in that situation for very long. So Ayurveda is, is truly a spiritual science. It actually tells you to, to understand yourself and your human life and, and ask the question, why is it happening to everyone else and what is happening to you? And what can you do to influence and expect how you're contributing to it and still separate yourself from the outcome of your actions to a certain extent? All the Vedantic text, all the Vedantic wisdom that we talk about actually distills down to this concept of be responsible for your own actions and don't really be involved in what it comes back to you. And even that selfless, mindful activity is good enough, not only to maintain health, but try to give you that ability to make much bigger differences with your thoughts, with your actions, with your vision. You are able to influence people and slowly start making changes. And Dr. Suhas, one final question. I'm curious to know, of all of the Ayurvedic teachings, whether it's about physical health or any of the philosophical insights of Ayurveda, what has the area been that's been the most challenging for you as a person to actually stick to and, and put in place in your life? Has there been any area where you've had the greatest challenge? Well, I think, uh, especially living in the West for some time now, uh, I personally, and uh, I see in my client population as well, is the ability to organize your time. Hmm. Means, uh, from an Ayurvedic point of view, you need time to meditate, you need time to do the oil massage for yourself, you need the time to do oil pulling, you need the time to do the tongue scraping, you need time to fix a good meal for yourself, you need time to go and figure out one-hour yoga class in a busy week. You need to figure out time to exercise. You need to figure out time to get uh, seven, eight hours good night's sleep. So you can't manifest time. And there's so much of pressure and so many things happening. So the time is a limiting factor at times. So this whole jet-set fast food thing, whether you don't have even time to fast properly, you don't even have time to detoxify yourself properly, all of those things, I think that is what I feel is, is a bigger challenge. And I, I don't blame my patients also because they, they have a living to make, they have a commute to do, uh, uh, reinforcing these changes, and they understand everything what I tell them intellectually. But when it comes to doing things, fixing a khichdi, fixing a meal, waiting for 30 minutes, even going out and buying from the far farmer's market or grocery stores, healthy organic ingredients, all of those things are very, very time-consuming. Even for them to come for panchakarma, to take about a week away from, from, from their schedule, 
to uh, to receive detoxification and rejuvenation is something which is very very difficult and i think that is one of the biggest challenge that we have created such a fast pace of life and we spend a quality of human life doing something which at the end of the day doesn't really make a whole lot of sense i see so many people who spend their health to get some wealth and afterwards they would like to share their wealth with you to regain the health which is mm-hmm. not always possible mm-hmm. means if you look closely means people people have mortgages and they work for this one debt thing for 30 years you're working for a debt building for 30 years and it's still going to be there long after you're gone and if you're not satisfied by one debt thing then you would go and buy another debt condo somewhere else and work for that debt thing then you'll have a debt car sitting in in your in your front porch that you will work for that thing so you have become a slave for these debt objects that that dictate your life and you spend quality human life just working for them I think you've identified the problem and the challenge of our culture and it's certainly a problem and a challenge I share. I'm wondering to end on a note of how to address that challenge of time. Well, I think you need to prioritize. You need to really uh, understand that one of the full-time responsibility for me is to be healthy and happy. And I'm doing this work to make myself healthy and happy. I'm doing something for me and my family and what are the other ways that uh, they can see me healthy and happy. So, I should be able to probably prioritize certain things. I should learn to say no to certain things. I should be able to organize my time and minimize unwanted distractions, reducing unwanted commutes, reducing unwanted uh, entertaining ideas that will distract and take away my time and slowly start incorporating a uh, few things slowly and steadily because one of the common mistake is that you want to do 10 things and want to lead an ayurvedic lifestyle um i tell them that yeah you add this 2 minute self massage in the morning then in the evening you start doing few things differently you start fixing one fresh meal uh, every day and start enjoying that in a sitting closed atmosphere where you're not watching television or doing everything else uh so slow baby steps to start doing things and adding few things and slowly you will start living and incorporating those things more and more into your lifestyle so i think on a positive note it is very important that i am responsible for my own health and well-being and i should be doing everything i should be eating good foods i should be shopping in the right place for it i should be minimizing the unwanted clutter in my life in order to probably uh, reduce the pressure on myself and more importantly cultivate a positive biological relationship with people friends families uh, and your own children uh, which will start bringing things back into a kind of a feedback loop to nourish yourself properly So I think Ayurveda is is a manual for health and living and uh, our ability to actually start looking at everything that I do which makes me feel good and how my body feels about it whether am I mindful enough to tap into those signals and rectify it there and there itself and I think that is the key when you will be on an autopilot you will be managing your own health at your own individual level I've been speaking with Dr. Suhas Kashirsagar. Dr. Suhas with Sounds True has created a new six-session audio learning series called Ayurvedic Wellness: The Art and Science of Vibrant Health, as well as an audio program on effortless weight loss the Ayurvedic way. Dr. Suhas, it's been wonderful to talk with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tammy. Namaste. Namaste. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.